good news for dairy farmers at a time when, frankly, dairy farmers need some good news. Welcome to Extension Out Loud, Season 3, Episode 1. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Bailden. This is the first episode of our winter 2019 season, and we welcome back Julie Suarez, Associate Dean of Governmental and Community Relations in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell University. And we will be talking about the Farm Bill. Julie was our first ever guest on Extension Out Loud, and during our previous conversation, the Farm Bill was still in process. In December of last year, the Farm Bill passed, and shortly thereafter was signed into law. So naturally, we wanted to bring Julie back and talk about how the bill impacts New York State farmers and families. And then the government shut down. And we recorded this conversation a week or two in the midst of that shutdown, so some of the comments reflect that situation. And there's still some uncertainty about a new shutdown, so we thought including those comments would have value. Before we get to Julie, though, upcoming episodes for Season 3 will be looking at urban ag, maple, and much more. And just as a reminder, your opinions and insights matter to us, so please fill out our listener survey. The link will be in the description of this episode, as well as on our SoundCloud page. Welcome today. We're doing a follow-up on the farm bill since the, the bill actually did pass, but now we're in the middle of a government shutdown and I'm just curious, before we even start, does the shutdown have anything to do, does that impact the implementation of the Farm Bill at all? Oh, absolutely. You know, all the good initiatives that were passed in the Farm Bill, you know, everything from industrial hemp uh, eligibility for crop insurance to, you know, the availability of really exciting and innovative new research extension funding opportunities, none of that is moving while the shutdown is occurring. So it has a really negative impact on everything related to the food and farm system the longer the shutdown continues. So does that mean that, that if if I have a price support for one of my, my crops and I'm due to have a check sent to me, it's not going to come until the shutdown ends? That's a little unclear at the moment. So USDA Secretary Purdue, to his credit, understands the pain that's going on in the farm community right now and has opened up several FSA offices. So depending upon where you are in that process, you may be able to complete your paperwork and file for payment and receive payment. But it's still a little unclear, at least to me, which programs are currently cutting checks and which are not. You know, a real problem for farmers and one of the reasons why the FSA office is being opened up was a big deal is that right now you're in the winter season so they're trying to plan ahead to their season to come Mm -hmm. and most farms will borrow, you know, some sort of operating line of credit or, you know, they're seeking a disaster payment from, you know, weather disaster from the past year and so they're really waiting to see what's going to happen with FSA and the, the longer the shutdown continues the more and more uncertainty there is, the harder it is for farmers to to conduct their normal business and to decide, you know, even simple decisions like what seeds am I going to be able to purchase can, for some farmers, be contingent upon what their FSA loan strategy and payment strategy looks like. So the longer the shutdown continues, the harder it is for farmers to make business decisions as we look forward to starting another growing year. But we don't want to be all doom and gloom, so let's jump back to some of the positive things that happened with the Farm Bill. So last time we talked with you, Julie, we talked about a lot of things. We focused a little bit on the nutrition title and SNAP, which there were a lot of uncertainties around that when we initially talked. There were some potential changes to the conservation title. 
We also talked a little bit about the dairy pricing struggles in New York State and how that relates to some farm bill policy. And we did talk a little bit about research and development funding. One thing we didn't talk about, though, was hemp, which turned out to be a really big part of the farm bill. Was that a surprise? How did that come about? And what does it mean? Sure. Well, you know, the inside baseball politics on this, not that it's really that much inside baseball because it's been widely reported, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell comes from Kentucky. And Kentucky has been a state that has long wanted to see industrial hemp legalized. And in fact, Mitch McConnell was very instrumental in the last version of the Farm Bill, which did actually authorize states to grow industrial hemp on a pilot basis and allowed land grants to conduct research. And so, I don't want to say it was entirely a surprise, but it was a very pleasant surprise Mm -hmm. that the Farm Bill uh, did effectively fully legalize the growth and sale of industrial hemp, both within states that have existing permitted programs and also uh, allows for the sale of products across state lines, which was really important. You know, one of the things that we're really excited about is that at Cornell, our governor has been, Governor Cuomo has been a really strong proponent of industrial hemp, as has our new assembly ag chair, Assemblywoman Donna Lepardo. And so New York, I think, is much better poised than many states in terms of meeting the economic growth potential of this newly authorized crop. You know, it doesn't matter where you go. I was in Walmart the other day and found Sunstrand industrial hemp fiber bedding products for guinea pigs, believe it or not. (laughs) That's a company that Cornell Cows is working with right now to get to come into New York to take advantage of this new market. And the reason why new companies are interested or existing companies are interested in New York is because, quite frankly, our growers have experience growing this product. So about two years ago, Cornell Cows and one of our faculty members, Dr. Larry Smart, really worked strongly with a core group of really dedicated, innovative entrepreneurs in the farm sector, we grew about 2,000 acres of hemp. So we're not starting from scratch. And you've started to see new investments come into the state in part as a result of Cornell Cal's experience. We have a good extension team that can really advise farmers that are looking at this crop. I think everywhere I turn, there's another hemp meeting coming up. And so really excited that we have this expertise already and it's starting to pay off. You know, just last week there was a big announcement of a very significant multi-million dollar investment coming into the southern tier from a company named Canopy that's very interested in hemp for CBD oil properties. And so we can expect and, and hope that our farmers will have another good income stream from their ability, those who choose to do so, to grow a new crop and to diversify their operations. So really exciting to see this. And I think New York is really well poised to meet demand for this industry and can really expect to see some economic growth. I'm really excited about this part of the farm bill because of the opportunities it gives to our growers and to our farm and food entrepreneurs. So, Julie, just to sort of follow up and probably jump a little bit away from the farm bill, but here in New York State, so if I'm a farmer and the farm bill is passed and it now legalizes the growth of hemp, Am I free to purchase my hemp seeds and plant 50 acres as a test, or is there a process I have to go through? Do you know anything about that regulation? You do still have to go through a process, and you do still have to have a permit to grow industrial hemp. And the permit system right now is open. So if you're a grower and you're interested in hemp, uh, you'll want to go on the Department of Agricultural Markets website, just Google New York State Department of Agriculture Markets Industrial Hemp, and the uh, associated permit will pop right up. And that permit process is not really an onerous one, but it is 
one that growers will need to follow. And as with everything, our best experts on industrial hemp will say, don't ever plant a crop until you know where you're going to market it. So the really, really key aspect of designing any new component to your farm is, of course, figuring out where you're going to market and sell it so that you're not left with a crop that you're unable to sell. So returning to some of the topics that we talked about initially, when we talked last, there were two versions of the Farm Bill. There was the House version, there was the Senate version. There were some significant changes to SNAP eligibility that were proposed in the House version. And as I understand it, they didn't make it into the final bill, um, the reconciled bill that was passed in December. But were there any significant changes to the nutrition title um, that'll impact New York State folks? Great question. The nutrition title is largely intact. So the SNAP program, as well as the SNAP education program, which is one that Cornell Cooperative Extension has been very much engaged in, remains largely intact. So there are no significant changes to the SNAP portions of the nutrition title. That's a surprisingly positive uh, outcome there. If you had to be put on the spot, what is the most surprising thing about the farm bill that passed? Is there something that really jumps out at you or is it just a, a series of smaller changes that cumulatively add up to something positive? Sure. That's a great question, Paul. The most surprising thing about the Farm Bill that I noticed was perhaps the creation of a new urban agriculture initiative within USDA. So for a lot of time, we haven't really viewed or, you know, accepted perhaps the growing movement of urban farmers, you know, either in cities like New York, cities like Chicago, et cetera, into what I would call the quote-unquote regular farm community. And so really excited to see USDA as part of this farm bill really directed to establish an office and a staff person, a director of urban agriculture and innovative production. And so this comes also with the creation of a new research and extension awards program that's really going to focus on facilitating growth of urban farming and emerging crops. And so we're really excited about this at Cornell Cows. We have a lot of ties with urban growers already. Many of our urban growers are, in fact, Cornell Cows alumni, which is a wonderful thing. Um, But we also have a great program called the Cornell Small Farms Program, which has been collaborating extensively with Grow NYC in the city, which runs the farmer's markets. And so we have a lot of ties downstate already. We have two extension specialists that are really focused on helping controlled environment agriculture or kind of rooftop farms succeed and thrive down in the city. So I'm really excited to see this focus on urban agriculture. I think for a long time that's been a missing link. I don't think that urban farmers are ever going to be able to entirely feed their cities. So, you know, not naive enough to think that. But when we have farms located much closer to the people in which we're trying to feed, that understanding of agriculture, even though it's a different system of agriculture, can only help bridge the divide between more rural and urban communities. And so I'm excited about this because I see innovation in urban farming as being something that New York City is a leader in. And I'd like to make sure that Cornell Cows and our wonderful Cornell Cooperative Extension partners are aggressively promoting the growth of urban farms in New York. And Julia, just in thinking about this, one of the things that one would sitting on campus here imagine what happened with the support for urban agriculture is you're going to get a much more diverse producer base. Is that a fairly reasonable hope for a a program like this is to, to diversify our farmers and start bringing in some underrepresented folks into the farming community? 
Absolutely. In fact, that's been a big focus of the Cornell Small Farms Program, as Joe mentioned a few moments ago. You know, Cornell Small Farms Project is currently working on an effort both in Western New York with Hispanic and Latino employees who have long been employed in agriculture, have a desire to further their careers either into middle management or to eventual ownership of their farms. So working with a population into providing really targeted leadership, cultural competency, business and financial planning skills, again, in, in cooperation with the Lake Ontario Fruit Team. You know, we're also seeing efforts with Grow NYC, as I mentioned before. They have a really wonderful new immigrant farmer program. And so Cornell Small Farms has been partnering with Grow NYC to really help recent immigrants or long-term immigrants who probably came from areas where they had a more rural or agricultural background and really want to establish themselves in farming in New York State. As we see the growth of New York agriculture, we see real opportunities to encourage better diversity within our farm community, both in issues of scale and other opportunities as well. The Harvest New York program has done some urban ag work, not just in New York City, but also in Buffalo. Does this new urban ag portion of the farm bill provide support for that program? Well, we talked about the shutdown impacts, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not really sure yet how that program is exactly going to be structured. I think it's a little bit too early to tell, but certainly I think Harvest New York is really well poised to submit one or two or three or four grant applications to to help really encourage urban farming. And you're absolutely right. We see urban farming growing not just in New York City, but also in communities like Buffalo. And also the farm to school movement has really helped Mm -hmm. kind of incentivize some growth in urban farming as well. When we talked to you before, we also had talked a bit about conservation and the conservation title and a few potential consolidation of programs that might be occurring. Did any of that happen in the the reconciled bill? You know, much like the SNAP issue or the nutrition Mm -hmm. title, conservation was not quite as controversial but still, you know, uh, sparked a number of concerns from the environmental community. So I'm kind of happy to say that the conservation title largely remains the same Mm -hmm. as it was before, which I think will be good for farmers in New York State, particularly in terms of not having to try to figure out how to fit their operations into a whole new plethora of different programs. So conservation title remains largely intact. It's well-funded. You know, farmers in New York State have long been leaders in the conservation arena and have really maximized their usage of a lot of the the federal government's conservation programs, and I look forward to that continuing. Julie, just in thinking about this, we have five years until we go through this whole process again. Is that correct? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So a little little respite here, but, you know, we're always looking to the future. Do you have any idea, like if you're going to prognosticate, and I know this is an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What do you think five years from now we'll be talking about when we start talking about the farm bill? I hope we're going to be talking about the progress that we've made in some of the more research-themed areas of the farm bill, because a few things that I didn't touch on are this past farm bill really actually boosted research funding. And in the past decade, 15 years or so, we haven't seen too many boosts for agricultural and food and farm research funding. And so a couple other new programs that were incorporated into the Farm Bill are really exciting to me. You know, we have something called the Agriculture Advanced Research and Development Fund. The goal is to take ag science to the next level. You know, what is the moonshot in agricultural technology? 
And it's really focusing on innovative technology research to solve some of the pressing problems of the day. You know, we've mentioned climate change. Labor availability is also a significant concern for farmers. You know, one of the goals is to look more at what types of technology can we use to further mechanize agriculture, you know, in terms of the harvesting operations. A couple other things are talking about what's the next energy efficiency technology. You know, mm-hmm. you have a couple companies in the European Union looking at solar-powered robots. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, maybe it sounds a little far off, but it might not necessarily be far off into the future. And so I'm excited for the first time in my career in a long time to actually see the federal government increase their investment in research because what many people don't know is that Brazil and China have been outspending us in our food and farm Mm -hmm. R&D since around 2005. And that's a really serious public policy issue and one that we don't really talk about that often, but we simply can't afford to fall behind in the agricultural technology and innovation race. And so I'm really excited to see some of the new farm belt research investments. You know, I mentioned the technology focus, but another one that's really exciting is the Agricultural Genomes to Phenomes Initiative, which was fully funded. You know, we've had something to look at genetics in agriculture for a while, but for the first time we added a little bit more money, which is great, and included this concept of phenomes, right? Because you can find out what the DNA of a plant is that you're growing in the field. But what's really important is to know what the phenotype is so that you know what those genetics are causing those traits to express themselves in the plant. So if you talk about climate change, you know, how are we really going to help our farmers in New York State adopt to a changing climate in the future? One of the biggest things we're going to have to do is get a lot quicker and a lot more streamlined in our plant breeding. And so having this agricultural genomes to phenomes project that's available for for research to help support our plant scientists and ultimately our farmers is something that's going to be really important for all of us who like to eat. And I certainly (laughs) do. (laughs) Most of us would like to eat. (laughs) Exactly, you know. (laughs) So, Julie, can I just ask one question? When we talk about uh, research, you know, immediately we start thinking about because we're here on campus, we think about, well, research scientists that Cornell has, and then we think about corporate research scientists. But does any of this research funding flow down to producers and farmers? And, and if so, what does that look like? Well, I would argue that ultimately the R&D funds always flow through to farmers because whatever we develop on campus or at Cornell Agritech in Geneva ultimately is extended out into the farm community if it's successful um, through our wonderful extension system. So ultimately everything benefits the farm community. To answer your question a little bit more specifically, you know, the farm bill does contain continued funding for things that are really important to farmers like crop insurance, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously huge support for farmers. It includes FSA loan guarantees. Again, another really important business management strategy for many of our farm families in New York. Also, of course, continues funding for a couple grant streams to help producers better market their products, particularly, um, finding international trade opportunities that may be a little bit uh, disrupted at the moment through our trade environment. (laughs) And so those marketing and promotion programs are helpful. You know, the other thing that the Farm Bill does continue to is a focus on beginning farmers. And so, in fact, they've added some funds to the beginning farmer and rancher development program, as well as what was new in the last Farm Bill, the veterans program. And so two really important programs to really help our beginning farmers and new farmers and veterans, second career farmers coming into the ag community is 
Paul, you talked about before, you know, we look at who are going to be our next farmers. For those farms that aren't as fortunate to have a succession plan in place, we need to make sure we're recruiting new people into the industry, and some of those programs will really help us going forward. Great. Katie, what else do you have? Well, since we um, started talking about trade, um, (laughs) so... We have been talking about dairy pricing and and struggles with dairy pricing in New York State for a while. Did the new farm bill do anything to address some of that struggle? Sure, that's a great question. I will say just from my more limited understanding, I believe that the new farm bill is really going to help provide some better risk management options for dairy farmers, particularly those that are of medium to larger sizes that have really been struggling in this current environment. You know, there are some changes to the insurance that farmers can purchase that should actually return financial security when prices tank like they have been for the past unfortunate four years. Um, We hope that they don't get to this point again, but the reality is that that dairy does continue to be a commodity sector and it's always really heavily influenced by global trade conditions as well as production in other countries. And so Mm -hmm. I think that the Farm Bill really took a, a significant good step forward in improving the safety net for dairy farms. I think that time's going to tell how, again, like everything, <laughs> kind of have to wait a little bit until after all the regulations are developed when the shutdown comes to a hopeful speedy closure. But overall, it's good news for dairy farmers at a time when, frankly, dairy farmers need some good news. Great. Yeah, we appreciate your optimism on all those fronts, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we want to take too much more of your time, but I just want to ask you, is there something that we've missed so far in our conversation? Is there something that we should have raised and talked about? You know, we didn't talk about something that's a little bit more obscure, but of importance to our organic farms in New York State. So the Farm Bill, for the first time, actually moved the Organic Research and Extension Initiative into the permanently authorized section of the Farm Bill, which means that it'll always have some level of funding going forward. And so that was a really significant step forward. You know, New York does have a, a really strong organic farming system, and Cornell Cows is ranked right up there. I think our organic R&D expenditures annually are around $8 million a year. We have a section of the Homer Thompson Research Farm that's certified organic, and we're probably going to certify some more of our research farms as certified organic in the future just so that we can make sure that we're meeting industry needs for a really strong and robust organic research program. So while it may sound like a very obscure change, it's really important to our organic farmers because they're more limited in the tools that they have um, to address certain pests and disease challenges. And with climate change coming up, we know we need to do a lot more to help address and find environmentally sustainable ways of addressing some of these new pests and diseases that we're seeing on our farms. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. 